Let me add my good morning. Uh, my name is Tom Ricks, and I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. We're glad to have you worshiping with us this morning. If you haven't yet passed the attendance books, they're on the outside aisle. If you wouldn't mind grabbing those and signing them and passing them to the middle. Uh, if you're visiting with us and you want to know more about Green Tree, this is the most direct route. Uh, you can sign your name there and give us a phone number or an email address. Uh, there's a lot of boxes you can check off on what questions you may have. We'll be more than happy uh, to reach out to you and to, uh, to make sure you know about Green Tree. And Green Tree families, you look around. If you see somebody you don't know, please make sure you introduce yourself and make them feel uh, welcome here at Green Tree. Uh, two quick notes. This is our last Sunday of the month at North Kirkwood Middle School. From here on out, we're at Kirkwood High School beginning next week. On the 22nd, which uh, will be our service, one service, 9 o'clock on the 22nd. Our children will be leading a good portion of that service in their, in their choir. They've been working hard all fall, uh, but will be one service all together. And then on Christmas Eve, Tuesday, we, uh, we will have two services, one at 4 o'clock and one at 6 o'clock. Those are the same service. You don't have to decide, is, is one more geared one way or one the other? They're both exactly uh, the same. And then the following Sunday, the 29th of December, again, one service only, all of that at Kirkwood High School. So uh, that's in the, it's in the Seasons Weekly. Uh, we'll probably send you an email blast this week reminding you of that. There'll be a sign up here out in the driveway next week for those of you to pull up. It'll just say, keep going and head on over to Kirkwood High School. But that's where we'll be uh, next Sunday. Uh, and also this morning, immediately after this service, we're going to have a very brief but important congregational meeting. Every fall, we, uh, when we're finished with our officer nominations throughout the spring and summer, we have the election in the fall. And guess who forgot to do that this fall? I was a little bit distracted, uh, and I completely forgot to have the election. And so I wanted to just say to the nominees, well, you can come in and you can just you know, join us. Somebody said, Tom, that's not how our rules work. You can't do that by fiat. So we're, we have uh, the ballots ready. It, again, it will take five minutes, but it is very important that we vote on the, the nominees. So all those folks... Uh, that are going to be on the ballot, have been vetted by the, the screening team, are coming to you as endorsed by the elders, uh, but it's your vote. So if you're a member, we'd ask you to just stick around uh, for a couple of minutes after the service, and we'll get that done. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, one, of the, one of the parts of the Christmas story that is a little less talked about than other parts, but it's a picture uh, of what's to come. If we look at this little uh, snippet in the middle of chapter 2, it gives us some clues about how God uh, does his redemptive work. It, it, it gives us insight into his character and into his plan for salvation. Uh, our oldest son, Nathan, sent us a video about a week ago. When the video starts, there's a Winnie the Pooh teddy bear that's about this big. He's probably about two feet tall, and he's in a, in a seated position, and he's on the floor. So he's kind of got his arms out, uh, and he sees there's a big uh, Winnie the Pooh teddy bear. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, this gray blur comes into the screen and just crushes this teddy bear, just dives on top of it and gets a hold of it and then throws it around and is laughing and giggling to her heart's desire. It's our 20-month-old Avery. And Nate says, oh, Nate, Avery, that's good. Get, let's do it again. Back up. And she hops up, and they set the doll back. They set Winnie the Pooh back up, and she backs up. And again, you just see she's got on her gray pajamas. This flash just come through. She just annihilates Winnie the Pooh. And she's laughing hysterically, and the parents are laughing hysterically. Oh, it's so cute. And I'm laughing hysterically, too, because I'm thinking, just wait till she's in first, first grade. 
And one of the boys in first grade picks on her. And she just decides to take a run at him and tackle him and smash his face into the ground and get up and laugh and giggle. Won't that be so much fun? And I thought about calling him and warning him, and I thought, no, that would, that would ruin it. I'll just let them experience that on their own. So when she comes to my house, I'm actually going to get out one of our teddy bears and encourage her to do even more of that. And I'm going to teach her how to throw it down and kind of stomp on it and just see if I can reinforce all that. But it's, it's, it it's kind of like a picture of, of what may come. And what we see in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, verses 13 through 15, it's a bit of an odd twist in the Christmas story. You don't hear any Christmas carols about Jesus coming out of Egypt. There aren't any Christmas cards with the star over Bethlehem and, and, and Jesus and Mary and Joseph with their backs to Bethlehem as they're headed south to Egypt. And yet this particular part of the story, even though it's somewhat overlooked, very subtly points to God's redemptive plan. It shows us that he will not fail, and it gives us a picture of his redemptive character. Unlike my, my granddaughter, who, who has a, a bit of a, uh, I won't say a violent streak, but certainly has a lot, of, a lot of energy that she can use for either positive or negative things, what we see in this passage is that God is going to bring all of his power to bear, <coughs> excuse me, all of his grace, all of his compassion for your sake and for mine. So we're going to read this morning, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 13, and you've been actually, you've been sitting for about 15 minutes, so I'm going to ask you to stand up while we read the passage. It's just four verses long. That's actually only three verses long, and then remain standing while I pray for us. Hear the word of God. Now when they had departed, the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, he being Joseph, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the reign of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. Father, no matter how many times we fail, no matter how many times we fall short, no matter how many times our our faith ebbs and flows, your redemptive plan succeeds. Father, this morning we, we may be here and not feeling like that. We may be feeling overwhelmed this morning. We may be heartbroken this morning. We may not be feeling well physically this morning. Or we may be here filled with self-confidence and, and thinking we don't even really need you. We, we pretty much have it all figured out. Father, I thank you for your word which penetrates our hearts and our minds. Father, I thank you that we don't come here on Sunday morning to study man's thoughts, but we come here to seek your truth. And it is that for which we pray. Father, forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me be in any way a hindrance anyone hearing the truth of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. I won't make you stand during the sermon. (laughs) So we're looking at this topic as it was foretold. And uh, in this particular section, this little paragraph of the flight to Egypt 
uh, in order to save uh, Jesus' life because Herod, the king, the local king, the local magistrate, is going to uh, seek him to kill him because he sees it as a, uh, a, uh, a danger and a penitent to his rule and his reign. Uh, but it, it's somewhat of an afterthought. As I said, you don't see Christmas cards or sing Christmas carols about this. And yet there's a very profound statement that's made here when it says, out of Egypt I called my son. And we want to we look at that carefully this morning. Out of Egypt, for, for a person reading Matthew's gospel, and remember Matthew's gospel was written primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew was seeking to talk to his, his fellow Jewish folks, his kindred, about Jesus being the fulfillment of the promised Messiah that God had, had promised all the way back, uh, starting with their father Abraham. Out of your offspring, God told Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so Matthew is very concerned with helping his fellow countrymen see that Jesus is the embodiment of the Messiah. And so he goes back to the most profound experience in the history of the nation of Israel. Out of Egypt means out of slavery. When you read out of Egypt, if you're Jewish, you think that means when God let us out of bondage. That our forebears, that Joseph had gone, had been sold into slavery into Egypt. But God used Joseph to save Jacob and, and his, his other 11 brothers during a severe famine. And then they lived in Egypt for 400 years, but we were enslaved. And then God, through Moses, rescued us and brought us out of the land of bondage, out of the land of slavery, and into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. So when you read those words out of Egypt, you read out of slavery. When you uh, read the precursor to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, this is how God sets up his conversation with Moses. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the one event in all of the Old Testament where we see God's power and his love and his care at work redeeming his people. This is the one time where collectively the nation of Israel can point to, say this is the moment of salvation. This is the time when God came to our rescue. In fact, when he's talking to Moses in Exodus, in the early chapters, and he meets Moses at the burning bush, he says, I've heard the cry of my people. I've heard their, their woe and their anguish as they are in bondage. And so for God to call his son out of Egypt, to read this again in Matthew's gospel, is, is, should be big red lights going off and, and horns sounding. There's something redemptive about to happen. There's something that, that is going to happen through the life of this child that's going to reflect the redemptive character of our God. I uh, overheard a couple people talking this week about a friend of mine. And they were talking about him in very glowing terms. He had done something very generous for someone else. And, and one of the things I overheard them say was, you know, I never knew that about him. And at that moment, I chimed in and said, no, that, that's just how he is. He, that's, that's just the person he is. What you experience, you may not know him very well. I happen to know him pretty well. And he's like that all the time. You might be here this morning and, and feeling like you're in bondage. And feeling like you're enslaved to sin. You might be a disciple of Jesus and say, you know, I'm just really struggling this morning. Or you might be here this morning not, not claiming to be a Christian at all and saying, you know, I don't even, I don't even know, the, I wouldn't even begin to know where to understand the character of God. Here's a good starting point for all of us. 
God is a redemptive God. God bringing the, the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage. That's what God does. God's a God who saves. He's a God who redeems. Out of Egypt means out of slavery. But also notice that out of slavery does not necessarily mean that we will always be faithful to God. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew is quoting in, uh, in his, in, where he says it was written by the prophet, uh, he will, out of Egypt I will call my son. He's actually quoting from the prophet Hosea, and he's quoting from the first verse in Hosea 11, but I'm going to read just a little bit more to give you an understanding of kind of how Israel responded to being set free by God. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There's that exact quote. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals or the false gods of, of their day and burning offerings to idols. My people are bent on turning away from me. If you look at Israel's response to God's kindness, it was not to love him and to follow him and to, and to keep his commandments and to represent him in the world around them. Israel failed at their responsibility to share with the rest of the world what it meant to be the children of God. And although God had brought them out of slavery, their response was not to follow him and to love him, but to rebel against him and to ultimately just forget that he was their God and ignore him and go their own way. Which reminded me as I was thinking about this in application of my own life, My loving God is not based on a change of circumstances. At least it shouldn't be. And it's kind of like the the, the foxhole prayer. You know, Lord, if you get me out of this for the rest of my life, I'll always do X. If if you've ever prayed that right now, your shoulders are slumping just a little bit. You're hoping that that I I don't get eye contact with you and and I kind of, and trust me, I don't know what is in your heart. Uh, Some of you might think I do. I don't. There's, oh, I hope the pastor doesn't look at me right now because, boy, I made that promise, you know, and and I never followed through with it. I'm in the same boat. We ask God, you know, just help me, and if you help me, then I'll be good. <laughs> and what I found in my life is that simply isn't true. That just because God is, is redemptive and just because God is gracious, it doesn't mean that I actually love him the way I should. In fact, the very thing that, that can point me away from God is me assuming that he's always going to take care of problems the way I think they should be handled that he's always going to answer my issues the way I believe he should answer my issues. And when he doesn't, I'm disappointed. Or when he does, I forget very quickly that he did care for me. And again, I find myself going my own way. We need to be careful to remember that out of slavery doesn't always automatically mean that I will be faithful. And we can't just point the finger at the nation of Israel. We can't just say, well, that was, that was the Old Testament, folks, and, and they got it wrong. And, and clearly, we read the Gospels, people in Jesus' day got it wrong. But when the Apostle Paul talks to you and me in Romans in chapter 3, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us fail to love God as we should. Israel in the Old Testament simply represents all of mankind. So you and I can't sit in judgment. Say, you know, if we had been Old Testament Israel, it would have never turned out that way. God's character is a a character that is redemptive, that takes us out of slavery. But if our focus becomes then our ability to, to keep the rules or, or, to, or to please God, and, and we begin to be self-focused, we will quickly lose our way, and we will find out that, that out of slavery doesn't necessarily mean 
that we will be faithful to God any more than Israel was. But perhaps what this passage points to, perhaps the message that Matthew is after by by reminding us of Micah's statement, is that there may be a new son who can come and can succeed where others have failed and where others continue to fail up until this day. And I actually want to go back a couple verses in the passage that we didn't read, and I want to look for just a moment at the visit of the wise men, the visit of the the magi, and I want to look at their reaction to this new child born to see what hope there might be for this new son being called out of Egypt that would give you and me hope this morning. If you go back to verse 10 and the first part of verse 11, they've already come to, uh, to Jerusalem. They've sought out Herod. They've said, we've come to see the king of the Jews. We want to worship him. Herod calls all the, all the Sadducees and the Pharisees, all the rulers together. And he says, where's the child going to be born? And they say, it's going to be born in Bethlehem. And Herod says to the wise men, go find him. And then after you find him, come and tell me so I can go worship too when really he's going to kill him. And so this is after that conversation. Now they're going on their way. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Notice the the joy in the first part of this sentence. When they saw the star, when they they realized that they were going to uh, be able to accomplish their goal, they were going to be able to find the Christ child, what did they do? They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now, you read that, and it, I don't know, it doesn't, doesn't quite have the oomph it needs to have. I'm, and I'm not being critical of Scripture. But you could read that in your quiet time and go, you know, they rejoiced with exceedingly with great joy and kind of go on your way. Do you understand what that's saying? Do you understand uh, how we felt when David Freeze hit the home run a couple years ago to take it to game seven, Right? And, and we all knew when the ball left the park that there was going to be a game seven that Texas didn't have a chance in the world, right? We already knew it was over. How many of you that were at the stadium or were sitting in front of your TV went, oh, high five? <laughs> Wasn't that just delightful? <laughs> oh, look at the time. Let's go to bed. I, we, I couldn't sleep all night. I had to get on a plane the next morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. It, uh, you know, I got about three hours of sleep. We're jumping up and down. We're high-fiving like we hit the home run. If you were at the stadium, you're going crazy. And it's like, you know, the seventh game is just almost an afterthought. There's no way that, that, that we're going to do anything but win this thing. That's exceedingly great joy. When they were standing on the top of their camels and they were high-fiving each other. And maybe they were falling off. I don't know. But they were so pumped. They were so excited. Why? Because God was coming to earth. Because he was going to step into history into all of our brokenness, into all all of the the, the turmoil that we have created by our own sinfulness, and it was going to be gracious. And human hearts, when they allow themselves to be stirred by the divine, can be profound and glorious in their joy. And notice where their joy leads. Their joy leads to to, um, true, genuine worship. And going into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother. They saw this little guy, just a little tiny guy. And what do they do? They fell down. That's the technical word for worship. In the, in the Hebrew, it would say they worshiped and they worshiped. <laughs> they fell down and they fell down. They bowed down and they bowed down. That, literally, that's the word for worship. They knew they were in the presence of the divine. 
and they couldn't do anything other than bow before him. They were moved by the realization that someone far greater than themselves had stepped into the pages of human history. I'm always try to be careful about movie quotes I use. And, I, and I'm going to give you a movie quote this morning from a movie that I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend everybody see. It is an R-rated movie, but it, it's a movie about redemption. It's called The Shawshank. Redemption is actually the title of the movie, and it's about a prison. And it's about two men in a prison. One is a guy named Red, and Red is uh, the old guy uh, who's been in prison a long, long time. And it takes place in the middle of the 20th century. And the young guy is a guy named Andy Dufresne. And Red and Andy become friends. Well, Andy, throughout the, the, the movie, uh, ends up working for the warden in his office. And Andy's kind of like the guy who's always going to find a way to rebel, but he's always going to use his rebellion for the good of others. And so one day he locks himself in the warden's room, in his office, and he, and he gets away with this for about five minutes before they break in and, and, and take him to solitary confinement. And while he's in the warden's office, he takes... Uh, the warden's uh, rate, the record player, some of you might know what a record player is, um, and he puts on an Italian opera, and there are two women singing an opera, and he, and he plays the music, and he broadcasts it all over the prison yard, all over the halls of the prison that is filled with thieves and murderers and rapists and, and, and the worst of the worst. And Red, who is the, the old prisoner, is the narrator of the story, and he says this about the reaction when the music began to play. This beautiful music began to play. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words, and it makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. I think Red's words describe the hope and the joy and the worship of the wise men as they came to see the Christ child, as they began to understand and get their minds around the ramifications of what this meant for their own lives as well as for the rest of humanity, they were overwhelmed with joy and with worship. And my one question for myself is this morning, and it's my question for you, is that our response? Is that my response? When I look at this one who's called out of Egypt, that is the the embodiment of God's redemptive plan for my life and for your life, not because I earned it, not because I was good enough, not because I was smarter than other people, not because I have talents that others don't have, not because God looked down and said, oh, let's make sure we save him because he's got a fine singing voice. That certainly isn't the case. And I have a really warped sense of humor too, as you've already heard. (laughs) There's a lot of reasons not to save Tom Ricks, and I haven't even mentioned the real honest and true ones. And yet I've been saved by God's grace because he's a redemptive God who calls people out of slavery and into freedom. Does that make me respond in joy and in worship? One other thought in this passage this morning about the son who's going to be called out of, uh, out of Egypt, that our hope is actually identified 
um, by the gifts that are given to this child. Look at the second half of verse 11 with me, if you would, for just a moment. So they've fallen down and worship, and then it's like, oh my gosh, wait, we, we've got some stuff we want to give you. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of, of gold and frankincense and myrrh. What did I do? What's the typo? <laughs> Golf and frankincense and myrrh. That's outstanding. That is so good. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, what did I do? What's wrong? We may, John, we might want to fix that. Although, I don't know. It, it woke everybody up. You might want to just leave it in there. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Wow. Guess that's what I was thinking about yesterday when I typed out my notes. Excuse me. What on earth are we talking about? The, uh, the gift speaks... Uh, not just about the giver, but the gift speaks about the one receiving the gift. And I, I've told you this story before. It's been a while since I've told it. When, uh, when we would go away, when the kids were little, we'd bring them back a T-shirt. Or, you know, wherever we went, we'd bring them back a little gift. And uh, one time we came back from a trip, and Katie was about eight years old. And we, uh, I, you know, Jordan was, if she was eight, Jordan was probably about four. And, and so, you know, Jordan got a little T-shirt or something, and Nathan got a little something. And then we gave Katie this box, and she opened it up. And Katie's our strong-willed child. Katie got more spankings in a week than Jordan and Nathan combined their entire lives. I mean, this child was just, you know, she was going to fight you every step of the way. And so she opens up this box, and it's a box of wooden spoons. Just <laughs> think about it for a second. And, uh, and she went, huh, that's not funny. <laughs> Well, we said, it is a little funny, and then we gave her, gave her the real gift. But, but the gift not, doesn't just say something about the giver. The gift says something about the person who receives the gift. And so to receive the gift of gold, not golf, <laughs> is a gift befitting a king. And as they bring gold to Jesus, uh, some commentators mention that this was certainly God's provision for Joseph to be able to pay for a trip to Egypt and to live there for a while and, and come back. And that's certainly true. God does provide very clearly here. But it also reminds us that the one who is coming out of Egypt is going to rule and reign with power and with authority every, every moment of every day of his life. And you actually think about this even when Jesus is going to the cross and those who are going to execute him say, don't you know that, 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 I, that I have the power to, to condemn you or release you? And Jesus says, you have no power over me except that which is given to you by heaven. Jesus was ruling and reigning even as he went to the cross. And gold speaks of, his, of the kingship of Jesus. And frankincense is, is the incense represents the worship of God. The idea of, of the incense going up is, is a picture of the prayers of the people of God going before God's throne. If you read in Revelation 6, you read about the incense, the prayers of God. And so it's a very wonderful visual for us. Not only is it aromatic, but it reminds us that this one who is, is coming out of Egypt is going to serve as the priest. He's going to represent us to God, and he's going to represent God to us. There's going to be a bridge that's built. There's now going to be a pathway established that was not there before, a pathway of redemption and a pathway of hope. And myrrh is, is embalming. It, it's what you use when someone dies. This is one who was born to die. In John chapter 19, Nicodemus 
comes to, uh, comes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus, and he's given the body, and he takes him down, and he takes him to this tomb where he's going to bury him. And, and John tells us in chapter 19 that he uses 75 pounds of myrrh, 75 pounds of ointment to, to care for the body of Jesus before it's laid in the tomb. This is the one child in all of history who was born with the right never to die, and yet it was for the express purpose of his death that he was born in the first place. This one who comes out of Egypt, the gifts that are given him reveal to us the grace and the mercy and the power of God to accomplish his redemptive purposes. God calls his son out of Egypt. It's a reminder of God's past faithfulness to Israel. And through them, his faithfulness to all mankind. It's a picture of his ongoing faithfulness. Neither Herod nor any other force in the world was going to be able to stop God's plan to bring salvation, not only to the people of Jesus' day, but to you and to me this morning. This son would be the faithful one. It's a picture of what was to come in God's work of grace. What is our response? By his faithfulness, may it be joy and worship and trust in him, the son who is called out of Egypt. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your eternal word that speaks powerfully into every, every aspect of our lives. Father, I know that there are some here this morning that are dealing with great struggles and hope is maybe the last word on our tongue. And Father, I pray this morning that we would see even in this small snippet of the Christmas story that oftentimes goes overlooked, that we see that your plan is a plan to bring us out of bondage to sin and into the freedom that is found only in your gospel. So may we respond in worship and enjoy. And Father, may we remember those of us who are your children that when we leave this place, we go into a world that is racked with pain and brokenness. And may we be your instruments of true joy and true worship this week that we might bring others to Jesus.